In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded then each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So today is my first time doing a Friday show, so my show that was previously Wednesdays, 12 to 2 p.m., is now going to be Fridays, 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific time. So this is the first one I'm doing, and it's also the first show I'm doing in a while. Last week didn't do any shows, so have some catching up to do with the book, so I'll be doing two books today, and also later on we'll be joined by my brother Parham to uh, discuss what's been happening in Iran and continue that discussion uh, about things that are happening, what we can do, um, and looking forward to sharing or hearing his insights and to do my new show or at this time. It's nice to have him there to do it with me. So looking forward to having him on in a little bit. But let's get to the two books. I'll start with the first one, which is from now a couple of weeks ago, The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate, written with his son, Daniel Mate. Uh, the Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And this is uh, quite a book, 500 pages long, uh, w- with uh, lots of different insights and information about well, what does it mean to be normal in an abnormal culture and what aspects of our culture lead to um, us being unhealthy as individuals, as a society. And so he gets into lots of different issues in society that we can look at as far as how we take care of ourselves, take care of others, the things that we value, and essentially this mindset that if you have an unhealthy society or if you have unhealthy norms, then being normal might not be a good thing. What does that even mean? Um, And so I really enjoyed this book, very insightful, uh, lots of different points that he made that I was nodding along, really agreed with. Some maybe I didn't agree as much, but most of the things he says I highly agreed with and and could resonate with and relate with. Uh, he talks about how this bi- body-mind unity or connection, and even the way we talk about that, making it seem separate itself is part of the fallacy, but really that the the body, mind, the um, our whole experience emotionally, physically, even those things we separate them or we think of it as different things emotional versus physical but however you try to define them anything emotional has a physical component or parts to it and vice versa so we can't really separate them Uh, i thought it was interesting the research he shared of various studies looking at how people who suppress their feelings often experience more things like autoimmune issues it's almost like the body is attacking itself the immune system is attacking itself or cancers or ALS or different illnesses uh, and that many doctors would note that people who get diagnosed with some of these illnesses tend to be very quote unquote nice people so nice meaning that they're likely to hold on to their own 
anger or things that are bothering them, um, but they are hurting themselves. And so this is relevant to a concept that I've heard uh, Gaber Mate talk about in, in other books or in, in other talks of his, but he talks about in this book as well, about this uh, two needs that we have that sometimes get pitted against each other, attachment and authenticity. So unfortunately, it can become attachment versus authenticity. So as human beings, be, uh, being mammals, we have a need to be attached because when we're born, we're helpless. We cannot take care of ourselves or even think to survive for actually probably a few years uh, compared to some other animals that might be able to survive much more quickly. So we have this strong need to be attached to others, to have caregivers. And so this creates this whole physical, mental, emotional, psychological apparatus within us to get attached to other people. So when we say, oh, you know, I got attached to someone, and we usually use that in a negative way, of course, it could mean because of the way we were feeling and getting attached to them, we made some bad choices, unhealthy choices. However, it is very natural and actually healthy for us to get attached to other people, other human beings. It's part of being human and having uh, our actual relationships. So we have this need to be attached, to have this connection. We also have a need to be authentic, as in expressing ourselves, our feelings, what we're going through. And authenticity, even I could say I've been guilty of this before, we sometimes talk about in this very um, idealized way that there's uh, some authentic version of ourself and that that's how we're supposed to be, as if it's this thing that's static, when really authenticity means having the freedom and flexibility to express whatever it is we're feeling or going through or what we'd like to experience and express in a given moment. So finding uh, your authentic self, when we talk about it in that way, makes it seem like you go to a place where you find who you are and you keep being that same person, when really it's more that when you're authentic, you can respond in every moment in whatever way feels right to you, good for you, whether it's your feelings that we're talking about or some way of just expressing yourself, that authenticity. Now, what can happen is when we are young, we can get a message directly or indirectly that being ourselves might not get us accepted or that if we want to continue the attachment bond or to be liked and loved by the people around us, we maybe cannot be all the ways we want to be. For example, if we get sad, we might find that our attachment figures don't want to be around us or show us that they are really upset with us and they don't want to be close to us. Or if we get angry, they might show us, no, you don't get angry. Or if you do, you are going to be shunned or put away or we put you in timeout where we won't be close to you. So unfortunately, the young child can learn from a very young age that it's an either or. You can either be authentic or you can be attached or have that closeness, but not both. And that could be a very tough lesson that many of us learn at a young age, that we cannot just be ourselves and expect that we'll also be loved and accepted by those around us. And actually, I mentioned a timeout, and that's why we want to be aware of how we deal with our children when they experience intense emotions because often parents do respond by th showing them that when you are most emotional and also when you need me most uh, 
that's when I'm going to push you away. We don't want those feelings. We don't want you to feel that way. And of course, every human being naturally will experience this whole range of emotions. And so we could think parts of us have to be put away or I'm somehow not good at my core. So I really, uh, I like this concept that he uh, illustrates very clearly of this attachment versus authenticity, which many of us experience that gives us the sense that being yourself is not an option if you want to be close to others. And this then plays out in how we uh, experience many of our relationships or all of our relationships, that we can have this personality or persona that we can uh, show to others that people will like, but then being ourselves more fully or showing a whole range of who we are, that might not be loved. And so in relationships, people will either not show themselves completely or they might choose not to get that close because they feel that if they do get close uh, the person will leave them or won't love them the way that they are so i really enjoyed that uh, description that he talks about because i do see that playing out so much in every individual you interact with this sense that being authentic might make you lose those you are attached to there's also lots of explorations in the book about things like capitalism or Healthcare. Uh, he himself uh, lives in Canada, but talks a lot about America as well and other countries and how we deal with things and how we deal with individuals in ways that is not healthy for our development. And especially when we look at human development, there's a whole section of the book, a whole part of the book on that. We can see that from even prenatal, but then uh, pregnancy and beyond, the ways we take care of or we provide for um, families for individuals and then for the, the infants is very lacking, especially in somewhere like the United States. When you consider things like a mother, if she has some maternity leave, might be just a few weeks, which includes before she gives birth and giving birth and sometime afterward to recover. Essentially, the thought is physically and then go back to work. But of course, if we valued child development and understood it, more fully or showed that understanding in the values we have in our economic system and the ways we have our laws, we would recognize that there needs to be bonds formed between the child and mother, father, caregivers. That is very important. That if we valued the right things, we would make sure we took care of our children, took care of each other, took care of our families in a particular way that we definitely do not, especially here in the United States. So there's definitely that theme that runs throughout the book, looking at how the system we have, the system of capitalism that is so part of every aspect of society, is not a system that is going to take care of us or create the best circumstances for us to um, develop more fully and create what we need. Because what we do need, and this is something that comes up early in the book, is we are relational beings. We need relationships. Relationships are what gives us the best outcomes in life. It gives us meaning, but it's also what we just need as a fundamental to be okay, to be happy, and to, to live our lives in a way that is the healthiest it can be. But if we look at how our society is geared it's not necessarily geared towards promoting our relationships and not only in the sense of things like maternity paternity leave and those things but he also talks about the disconnection 
that we experience in society and how we are becoming more and more disconnected. That is humans, we need connection, but we're more and more moving towards a society that is lacking that. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic created a new degree of this isolation because we had to be separate. Uh, we could not be present with one another, but it's something that we have experienced uh, in society that he notes we want to be aware of. So, so the book looks at these different things. There's a whole section on the toxicities of our culture, looking at how the systems that we have in place are not meant to lead to healthy development. If we focus on economic output, economic um, success, we are not looking at human well-being and success in the sense of developing the best ways that we can. So, you know, the book is, is really wonderful. I highly recommend it. Uh, again, on the longer side of some of the books you'll hear me talk about on the show, uh, but really one that's packed with lots of different information on ways of looking at what we're doing and really the sense that how unhealthy our society is. Because when we're in a society and we've lived a certain way, we just take it for granted that it's a given. Things have to be this way. How else could it be? Well, of course, we have to focus on the economy. The economy is so important. And of course, there are realities of making things function that we can't just uh, eliminate everything all at once. But really, we can see that the system we have doesn't have to be the way that it is. And there's also throughout the book, um, looking at indigenous cultures and some of the wisdom that often can be found there and how they interact with the society or their, their nature with what's around them and with one another that we have a lot to learn from. So often we can think of civilization as advancing uh, because we look at certain technologies, certain ways that we do things, uh, but we at times advance away from our truer nature or what is healthier for us. Um, there was also, you know, some interesting parts of the book for me looking at, he, he talks about the four A's and five compassions, some healing principles. And when you hear the four A's, one of them is authenticity, which I, I talked about before. There's agency, having this sense of being able to make decisions in our lives. And the last one is acceptance. But one of them that might be a little more surprising is anger. That anger uh, is one of these healing principles that he talks about. And actually, I really in, enjoyed that because I, I think often we think of anger as one of these quote unquote negative emotions that we shouldn't have or that it's so bad to get angry, but that anger is a healthy emotion that is protective. It is protecting our boundaries or protecting us if we feel that we are being wronged or hurt in some way. But very often we are taught to put an emotion like anger away because it's bad or because it makes us unlovable or unlikable. And so we shouldn't get angry. And we think if we never get angry, people will like us more or we again maintain that attachment, but we give up some of that authenticity. So I really valued that he was pointing out the value of anger, that it is an emotion we, we want to make sure we actually hold on to in its healthy sense of setting boundaries and not letting people hurt us. Uh, Dr. Mate has also written a lot and, and done a lot of work when it comes to addiction. And so there's some really uh, interesting insights there about his thoughts on addiction and how we sometimes view it incorrectly when we think of it just as an illness, that that might be lacking. But definitely when we think of it as 
some issue of willpower or defective character, which is often the case, the ways we talk about people who have drug addictions, like, you know, junkies or druggie or or terms that we use to undermine them, looking at them as less than human rather than recognizing that it's not that simple to think of it just as some type of weakness in character or that is not a weakness in character. And that relates to what I'll talk about as I wrap up the discussion on this book, trauma, which is something that he discusses throughout the book, which includes big T trauma, which is the types of traumas we think of like sexual abuse or being in war and experiencing those traumatic events with a capital T, which of course have a big impact on us. But that also there's the little T traumas or the smaller things that all of us go through. Um, or is it Peter Levine's book, The Trauma of Everyday Life, that he quotes in this book, I forgot if he was the author, but that we all have these different experiences that we've had that he thinks it's very important to recognize how those traumas, those wounds that are created, then impact so much of how we live our lives. And for example, people who have addiction or other forms of um, uh, ailments and things that they struggle with, we can trace it so often back to the traumas that we have experienced. And though you might think that you had this easy, good childhood, and you maybe did, doesn't mean that it was all bad, of course, but that often we can see that there's things you experience that negatively will impact you or that you'll continue to act in those ways. Because when we are hurt when we're, when we're younger, um, by our parents especially, unfortunately, It's the cliche that we tend to blame ourselves rather than blame our parents when we were younger. And we can make sense of that. And I think he does a good job of illustrating how as much as these types of thinking, ways of thinking can be so negative, we can understand that they were helpful in some way. Because if you're a child and you depend on these adults to take care of you and your whole well-being depends on them being good, it can make sense that you'd rather think that you're the bad one and they are still good rather than you are good and they are bad. The analogy I like to use is if you're on a plane and if you look out the window and you think the plane is about to crash, but you hear the pilot come on the speaker and say everything is fine, you would rather you are wrong and the pilot who has control to take over everything and the control to uh, make the plane go wherever it's going to go, you would rather that that person is right rather than you. So similarly, it's a lot better for your parents to be okay rather than for you to be okay. So unfortunately, when we experience these traumas in our early lives, especially if they're at the hands of our caregivers, we tend to internalize them and personalize them. And then we live our lives from those, what feel like insights and things we think we've learned. It takes a lot of time to unlearn those things. So again, this is a quite fascinating book, looking at different aspects of our culture and how society as we see it itself might be what is sick. And often when we see people suffering, it's not those individuals who are the problem, but they're actually kind of like a canary in the coal mine that are telling us something is not okay about how things are. So I highly recommend it. I think he's a great thinker and someone who has really um, shared a lot of important insights when it comes to health and mental health. The book, again, is The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned, I had to do some catching up on the books. And so the book from this last week that I'll be now talking about is Notes on Grief by Chimamande Ngozi Adichie. I read her book, We Are All Feminists, a few years ago and then 
saw this book that you wrote, which is uh, intense, kind of a, well, not memoir, but description of going through the grieving of losing her father about two years ago, June of 2020. And it's just a very, you know, talking about authenticity in the last book, feels very genuine and authentic expression of pain and the anguish and the variety of emotions that one experiences through grief while also uh, each person grieving and each loss is is independent and unique but still that many of it the things she discusses i think people will be able to relate and resonate with Uh, beginning with just the shock she says that they, they had a zoom call that they were having with their family every sunday and then later found out her father had passed he was was ill but um did not think that his life was uh, would be lost so quickly and so sharing that initial shock and although she doesn't talk about the five stages of grief we at times will discuss we hear her going through them even things like bargaining going through the uh, go, saying that she'll go to church or do different things just to have him back uh, or but denial, not believing he's really gone, or how could he be gone, not wanting to accept when people are even saying or sending their condolences, not wanting to accept them, or seeing images or videos of people going to their home because she could not be in Nigeria where her father died, um, and telling them, wanting them to leave. Why are you there grieving? My father's not gone, essentially. And so it was uh, a, in that way painful to hear, but very... Um, bittersweet also seeing how much she loved her father who was a prominent professor in Nigeria of statistics and seems like a very wonderful man uh, sharing her memories of him what she went through the different pains that she experienced in losing him uh, was quite powerful and impactful and I think it was a nice very uh, brief in the pages but very intense in the emotions and things that she covered in a very raw and real way. There was a part in the book that I thought was very important because I've actually discussed this before, that often when we encounter someone who is grieving, we can feel a lot of pressure. Okay, what am I supposed to say? And that's actually because of that pressure, many people don't even call or reach out or they stop calling and reaching out because we don't know what to say. We feel that pressure. And I think what could be good to keep in mind is to take the pressure off of ourselves when it comes to these circumstances. If someone is grieving, in this case, losing their father, losing a loved one, we're not supposed to make them feel good. Or if anything, they are supposed to feel bad. Not to tell anyone how they're supposed to feel, but it's the natural reaction to feel bad after losing someone that you love for so much and had a relationship with it is what we would expect to happen and so although it is our tendency to think okay if there's a problem if someone feels bad we need to make them feel good i think in general that's a problematic way to think because even if it's not as something as big as grieving the death of a loved one when someone is feeling down although yes we want to be helpful we let's say love them care for them want them to feel good as much as possible overall recognizing that trying to just pull them away from their emotions is actually not what we need. We need to be able to go through the healing, not be rushed through it or just be taken away from it or to be numbed from our pain. That's not going to actually lead to healing. 
you break your leg and we numb your leg, it doesn't mean your leg is healed. You still have healing to do. So it can be very important to keep this in mind. I felt it myself. Someone is going through something really bad. Or someone has lost a loved one and there's a pressure of what am I supposed to say? And so she shares her own experience of which, which many people have uh, shared. And I've even seen research that specifically has looked at this, that people tend to say too much and they tend to want to make things okay. You know, the, the more classic cliche things like, well, they're in a better place. Um, is a very classic one that we think that that's going to comfort someone. And it could, but we don't know what their belief is, first of all. And second of all, when people are sad about losing someone, often it's not because they think they're in a worse place. It's that they miss them. So it's not even what they're sad about is about them being in a bad place or not being in a better place. It's that they miss them and it's sad to no longer be with them. So that's one classic one we hear or just celebrate their life or focus on the good things. Whatever it might be, notice that you likely will have this reaction to want to say something very positive and uplifting, but take the pressure off of yourself. You don't need to do that. And what people say in the research looking at grieving is that people that upset the individual, it was the people that said too much. They tried to inspire or motivate or make it into a positive god needed another angel or um you know you were so lucky to have them other people lost let's say their family member at this age or whatever it is all these things don't actually help we don't need to say that and she actually says the thing that felt the best was people saying i'm sorry and because in its banality it presumes nothing she said and then there's a, a nigerian equivalent which i think is even more she says meaningful but that that was the most or the best thing she heard from people that just hearing I'm sorry was enough and it acknowledges actually the pain because you know if we think about it if you tell someone whatever it is that you're trying to make it positive in some way it's invalidating in several ways including that you're somehow saying the pain you're going through is actually not that much because I can make you feel good with just a few phrases or a few sentences so although it might feel paradoxical for some people or not what they think is helpful to someone at times acknowledging that what they're going through is really painful can actually feel much better than telling them they should be okay or they can be okay right now so telling someone they're hurting or understanding that they're hurting can feel a lot better than telling them they should feel okay at this time so i really thought that was an um, important aspect that she shared because i've seen it play out so many times personally but also professionally people going through grief but they often find is it's hard enough dealing with what they're dealing with but what can be hard is dealing with others uh, of course family and the things that can come up there but also people who aren't as close but who come in whether they call or text or they in person are sharing what they think are insights or sharing things and you have to now deal with them so be mindful of this. Of course, the book is a lot about going through grief yourself, but also when you're seeing others going through grief, that you don't become a burden onto them, that now they have to deal with you in some way. So I'm sorry. Sorry for your loss. Um, that's pretty, that's, that's enough. That can actually be more than enough. And if you say too much, this is one of those cases where less is more. Uh, but again, it was, you know, at times bittersweet hearing her share 
stories of her father and how wonderful of a man he was. And of course, it's very easy to say, well, that's why she missed him so much. And even I could be doing exactly what I was saying we shouldn't do and saying, well, that's why you miss them so much shows how much you love them and how good they were. But even that we want to be aware of how an individual might might take that. Uh, so, you know, I felt like the book does a very a good job of showing also that it's not some easy linear process. At times we see her happy or feeling something good, then missing him, laughing, crying, going through a whole range of emotions. She talks about how laughter is also part of grief, something that you might not anticipate. Um, early in the book, she says grief is a cruel kind of education. And I thought that was uh, how many things in life can feel that way. We get educated, you learn something, but it's in a very it can feel in a very cruel way. Um, you know, she talks about learning how ungentle the morning can be or that her sides were sore from crying so much and she didn't know that that would even happen. And so um, that feeling, I think, is one that many people can go through is that they don't even know what to expect when they are dealing with this type of grief, dealing with the loss. And going back to that, the theme of the stages of grief, the last one is acceptance. And of course, it's very clear she knows he's gone, even though at times saying she doesn't want people to grieve or to say that they are mourning him because she doesn't want to accept that he is gone. And so you can feel that acceptance. But the last sentence of the book shows how hard it can be for us to accept we've lost a loved one. And it can be so confusing for us to feel that we were just talking with them we were just carrying them in our heart or thinking of them and now they are gone this is something that very often people experience as something hard to comprehend about what is going on and i think it can make sense because of course when we have a relationship with anyone even if we're present with them as far as we're physically in the same space it, it always takes place like everything within our own heads so we have this relationship in our head and someone's gone it can be hard to comprehend that and to really uh, to internalize that. And so people often will have these experiences of thinking they see the person or imagining they see the person. She shares a heartbreaking dream that she has that she says feels so vivid where she's with her father and in the dream she's thinking, okay, well then I guess the hospital was wrong or they must have been wrong. She's a, He's still alive and even in the dream slapping herself to see if it's a dream and doesn't wake up so she thinks okay must be real and then the incredible pain of waking up and realizing it was a dream that he's he is truly gone and and i actually always think that when we talk about good dreams and bad dreams yes when you're experiencing them a good dream feels good and a bad dreams feel bad but often they're really the opposite because sometimes you'll wake up from a good dream and can be sad that it's not true and sometimes you wake up from a bad dream and are grateful that it isn't true and so she had one of those uh, good dreams as far as it felt good, but the pain of waking up and facing the reality made it a bad dream. But this is the last sentence of the book uh, where she says, I'm writing about my father in the past tense, and I cannot believe I'm writing about my father in the past tense. Um, powerful, yet heartbreaking words. And, and as I said, this book is a great illustration or demonstration of one person's experience of grieving the loss of a loved one but one that I think we can all learn a lot from. That is, again, Notes on Grief by Chimamande Ngozi Adichie. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. 
welcome back. So uh, today is the first time I'm doing a show on on Friday, and that'll be my new time for the fr uh, the week, middle of the week shows, four to six p.m. on Fridays. And so I'm happy to have my brother Parham here for this first show. Uh, Parham, welcome. Thank you, thank you, Fatty. Good to be here. I'm excited about this new uh, this new segment you have Fridays, yeah. four to six p.m. How's it going so far? So far, so good. We did the books and. Uh, I had to do two books because I didn't have shows last week, but, you know, having you on, of course, what's on most people's minds, Iranian Americans, is still the situation in Iran, and we wanted to have you on to talk a bit about that, and of course, there's so many different angles and aspects of it, but I, I think you wanted to talk about a few things that you've been noticing about what's going on, and of course, we're talking to the Iranians outside of Iran, and what we might want to focus on or keep our minds on, but yeah, I wanted to hear what you, you thought about what's going on what's happening inside of Iran is an inspiration to all of us I think uh, anyone who's seeing what's happening there the bravery they're showing all we want to do is the small uh, contributions and help that we can provide because of the incredible incredible bravery that they're showing and so we want to find the best ways to make some small contribution and I think what's been remarkable uh, for this movement has been the unity among the diaspora. I mean, certainly unity within Iran. It's incredible how unified they've been. Um, but there's been unity in the diaspora as well, realizing that although we have our differences and different approaches of what we think should be done, we have one primary overarching objective, overarching goals that are much bigger than the smaller issues that, that divide us or that cause... Um, some some friction or conflict mm -hmm. recently i think there's been more a scattering of of divisiveness and i think it's important to, to to pay attention to this and to notice some other variables and factors that might be contributing to this on the one hand what we know is one of the key variables one of the key factors that determines whether a revolution can be successful is whether the group that's opposing the existing regime is unified. Mm -hmm. So the moment there starts to be infighting and polarization within, the history shows those revolutions tend not to succeed. And that's how vital, that's how important this is. Now, if you think about it, if a regime knows far more than we do about these factors, they're very aware of how important this, this unity is and how much having some conflicts can be disruptive, I think it's very likely that some of these seeds of division that are out there might be orchestrated or at least amplified, maybe just some fuel to the fire by the regime itself. So I want us to be very mindful when we see conflict arising within the people that clearly are for the people of Iran and want there to be a change of regime, that those attacks should be seen with a grain of salt to understand what the motivations behind them are because often it's orchestrated from behind. And the other thing to, to, to recognize is social media, which is a huge source of right now, how we consume media about what's happening in Iran, is designed for polarization and conflict. Mm -hmm. We see it in all kinds of other areas outside of Iran. We see that people might have very, very marginal differences, but through social media, it becomes arch, arch enemies. Mm -hmm. So these are things I think just to be mindful of, that some of the conflicts, some of the divisions that we have are amplified by just the nature of how we consume media and also maybe orchestrated 
and intensified by forces that are not aligned with the people right. of Iran. That want that disunity. And, and so that can, you know, knowing where it's coming from, it can be, obviously we want to try to be mindful of that. But I think what's in our control is, are we contributing to unity or disunity that we all want to be aware of, right? Mm -hmm. Me as an individual, what am I doing that might be disunifying? Because I think people, we, we feel that. And of course, we're passionate about what's going on. People care a lot about what's going on. So we can, might even react, you know, oh, you see somebody, oh, no, it shouldn't be that way. Or you didn't do it this way or it should have been that way. And we can understand those feelings coming up for individuals, well-meaning and people who care a lot from caring a lot will feel things. I think what we express and put out there is very important for us to be aware of that we don't contribute. Okay, if someone wrote it in a way that you don't agree with, be aware of how you you know you respond. Even I've noticed it myself when I'm posting about what's going on in Iran, I I do feel this like, okay, am I doing it? The, you know, there could be this pressure of, am I getting it right? Because mm -hmm. overwhelmingly, um, what I've heard from people, the responses have been very positive. Very you know, every so often though, you do get some messages like, why did you say this? Or you shouldn't say it this way? Or I posted a picture at the protest and I was smiling, mm -hmm. and I got some comments like, why are you smiling? You know about this and, mm -hmm. and and i understand you know these things are again delicate situations but what we don't want to see happen is for people to feel like i shouldn't post because what if i get it wrong or i might not be you know mm -hmm. getting it quite right and then we'll it'll slow the momentum down as you said this kind of disunity or this uncertainty mm -hmm. can create in people a fear of of continuing to do what we want to do which is to amplify the voices of the people in Iran because maybe you know we're afraid we do it in the wrong way so I think your point is a very good one that we want to be when we see it to take it with a grain of salt but especially I think to make sure am I individually contributing to the disunity because I think we should all be mindful of not doing that absolutely and I think what it comes down to is simply being a bit more tolerant of the mistakes the inevitable mistakes that people are going to make mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, not everyone's going to become a scholar of international relations overnight. So they're going to they're going to miss things. Some people may not be as active as others. They may not post as actively mm -hmm. as others. Let me just say this. Me and Fadi right now, I haven't lived a single day in Iran. I don't really know what their experience is like to wake up in Iran today. Um, I am not someone who's an expert on any of these matters. All of us are going to be flawed and are going to make mistakes and are not going to do things in the way that everyone will agree with. You know, having unity doesn't mean being a monolith where we're all exactly the same and see mm -hmm. things the same way. If anything, I would say Iranian, our culture is not a very compliant, follow the herd culture. We have strong, passionate opinions. Mm -hmm. We express them. And so unity is going to be more challenging for such a diverse group that we are. Even just the diversity between our experiences and the experience of someone who's lived their whole life in Iran is very, very different. But if we don't come together behind one common objective, we are strengthening the regime. Mm -hmm. We are enabling and emboldening a regime that is currently murdering our children. I just have to say that. I mean, it's the, the stakes are so big, it's so important that we really have to put away, not everyone is going to do their support, express their support for, for, for this movement in the way that you agree with. Yeah. And we have to be okay with that. Absolutely. And I think it's... Uh you know, also, like, there's so it makes me think of just relationships in general. So it does seem like for this movement, which has already become more towards a revolution to be successful, it's going to take some time. Of course, we all would have liked for it to already have been done. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, it could be easy. Okay, we're all on the same page. Everyone's kind of saying I mean, maybe a similar thing. But 
over time, when we keep interacting with one another, just like if you're in a relationship with someone, things are going to start coming up. These differences start coming up. And so we have to be very aware that, like you said, they're going to come up. It's inevitable. It's impossible for thousands of millions of people in different countries, different ages, different backgrounds, so many different things, even within the Iranian diaspora, that we're all going to see things the same way, say it the same way, do things the same way. And so we do have to be aware of that's going to happen while also trying to stay unified. But it's just inevitable that we're going to have things come up. And it's, are we going to let those things that will naturally come up become divisive and make us splinter into pieces, which will then make us no longer a force? Or can we recognize, okay, they see it a little bit differently, but it doesn't mean we don't have the same goal as you're saying, which is something much larger than is the wording a certain way or mm-hmm. this picture a certain way or the graphic or even the map of Iran? Is it the, the way that we, you know, have to have the Caspian Sea in it and, the, right. you know, those things? You know, I've heard, I got messages about that. And I, I get it. These things, I'm, I'm trying to learn and I want to keep yes. learning. But we don't want that to be reasons where we split apart and are no longer on the same side. Yeah. And I think part of it is to recognize uh, we're all in a process of, of learning. And so, for example, the map of Iran, I learned something about that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I didn't know before. And if we approach it with this goal of educating others, say this is something that um, you should you should change about what you're doing, but recognizing that the intent the intent is still we have the same goal, right? So we if I think when we think about unity, a lot of people are like there are certain people that we definitely need to to root out, and I agree with that. Mm-hmm. If someone is pro regime, if someone is a um, a wolf in sheep's clothing coming across as as if they're a sympathizer. For regime change, but truly they're not. We need to root that out. We need to identify that and bring that out. But outside of that, if someone is with the best of intentions, they have the same goal. They're just misguided. They made an error. They made a mistake. You know, I'm not even going to take a position on whether, for example, concerts, events, all of these things. I'm not going to take a position on that. I don't know. I'm I'm not someone who can have the. I have a humility that we all I think should have. That we don't really know what's right, and people are going to make mistakes. Sometimes it'll be for selfish reasons, even. But if the goal, if the ultimate goal that we have is that we are there to stand for the people of Iran, we really need to be together and tolerate our differences for that one common goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in general, you know, you talked about being judgmental, which, of course, it's part of being human. We have to make judgments. We automatically feel certain things. Different cultures, I think, can be more judgmental than others. I was actually thinking about this that I'm sure there's research on so many different things, but... The more a society is status focused, mm-hmm. I think the more judgmental you become because mm-hmm. it makes sense that you are always looking for someone to be below you because then that gives you some level of comfort that I'm okay. And so we see yeah. this even in America, uh, you know, uh, poor whites, well, okay, I, I, they use that against them to be like, okay, well, at least you're not black was used to perpetuate white supremacy and racism and all bunch of things. Mm-hmm. But I also see this with Iranians. We tend to be very judgmental because we want to say, okay, I'm not that person. I'm not this person. So. I think, unfortunately, we have a tendency towards being very judgmental that we have to be aware of. And that's just, a, I think, a, a notion of our culture that is there. Yes. So we might feel like, okay, we want to show, and, and this is happening in social media, amplified everywhere, where it's like yes. this is like showing that, well, I'm more woke than you. I know more than you about this. And so as you're saying, you know, I'm imagining we're all trying to lift up this heavy rock that's like literally people are dying under it. Yeah. And you're like, well, I don't like your form, the way you're pushing. It's like, well, mm-hmm. if they're pushing in the right direction let them push in that right direction and let's save lives rather than I'm going to show you that your form is not quite right and tell you that I'm doing it better than you, you know? I like that analogy a lot. And it really is um, simply a matter of 
you know, once we start to become exceedingly judgmental of others, I think think about the next, the second order effect of that. It leads people to sort of feel like, well, I'm not going to contribute anything. I'm not going to post anything if mm -hmm. the moment I do something, it, if, if there's even a small, small error, I'm going to be attacked. You know, yeah. if it's done with good intentions, we, we really need to simply be a little bit more uh, accepting of such things because it causes people to be less likely to do things, less likely con to contribute. And it leads to the disunity, which is such a source of uh, strength for the existing regime to yep. see that there's so there's seeds of division. And I, and I think, again, what social media has done, put the Iranian issue aside, it has made the world much more polar, polarized. We see it in the United States where Republicans and Democrats have become very, very, there's, there's a vitriol, there's a, there's a hate that's perpetuated partly because of what social media has done. Mm -hmm. And so it's partly not, you know, I think Iranian culture does have a tendency to have uh, it can be a bit more judgmental. I think our opinions. This is such an emotionally charged issue. So when we see someone do something that's that's wrong, we we call it out with passion because it matters so much. What we're seeing in the streets, what people of Iran are enduring, I could see why they would be angry when someone does something wrong mm -hmm. or does something that appears, let's say, self-centered and against the people. Of course, but part of this is perpetuated by the nature of what social media is. So the divisions are going to seem much more stark, and part of it. I can put this in, in writing anywhere. I promise you part of it is perpetuated by the regime itself. They are trying to create more division. So a lot of the comments you'll read on social media may be orchestrated, not even by individuals, but by bots designed to create more conflict. So I think the a message there is for those of us posting not to be discouraged, to keep posting, keep sharing. We always have to look at our own intentions with anything we're doing but if you know your intentions are good acknowledge you're going to get it wrong sometimes you won't get it right as you said yeah sometimes you you know you learn so it's not that if someone says something you should just like always dismiss anything mm -hmm. negative about what you're posting really mm -hmm. there's a lot for all of us to learn I, definitely for myself i've already learned a lot about iran iranian history mm -hmm. current past uh, ways of talking about things and i still have so much more to learn but really that i hope we won't be discouraged because you're going to get some, you know, whatever you post on social media, you're going to get some negative things. I think whatever song you can see, hear the best song in the world, it'll have some like negative comments yeah. under it as well. So just be ready for that. Um, and so Parham and I are just trying to judge the judgmental people. And I'm, I'm just yeah. kidding, but we almost yeah. are. We want to be aware of that too. Uh, it's going to be part of it. It's part of the process, but we'll continue the discussion looking at those of us outside of Iran, what we, we can be doing, things that might be going on, more insights from Parham about what he is noticing. Let's go to a commercial break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back again. Joined by my brother Parham. We're talking about the the situation in Iran, and, and more really talking about the situation outside of Iran as far as what we can do. You were talking a lot about the disunity that, that can inevitably come up in anything like this, because it's not going to be a monolith of people, but if we can be more aligned on one goal, that that's going to be really important. But you also touched on this a bit, this uh, sense that, of course, this is going to be a long haul, a marathon, so to speak, rather than something short. And we, we have to keep that in mind that we're going to have to be consistent. And I've talked about this a lot because I, I felt it from the beginning that people, of course, are excited and they're very emotional about it, but it can be easy for like a, a helplessness to set in or the sense that oh I guess it's not going to happen or mm -hmm. we've gotten our hopes up before and this is just like the other times that could then make people not put as much effort in and then then it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy if we all think we lose that belief then we'll stop trying and then uh, it won't have that positive impact so 
Um, any thoughts you have on, on that aspect of things? Yeah, the consistency actually has been really impressive thus far. Yeah, That people are, in Iran, for example, are still, uh, are, the, the protests have continued after such a long amount of time. This is different from the times before, where this didn't endure as long as it has. And for the people, for all of us around around the world who are supporting the people of Iran, that consistency is very difficult too. It's it's easy to get people inspired for one day or one protest, you know, when, when, when something is it's new and fresh. It's hard to sustain that for months and months mm-hmm. uh, down the line. But that's the only way this is going to be effective, is if this pressure continues and endures, even when it's not the fresh and hot topic. You know, I think what's also tough is getting the attention, which is so crucial, of the broader international community, outside of Iranians, to pay attention to something. You know, the news cycle, it's very difficult to get this to be the headline on the on, on media outlets day after day mm-hmm, after day mm-hmm. because they want new stories they want fresh fresh ideas that can come in and so the biggest struggle i think it's good to notice and identify the challenges and i think one challenge is going to be consistency can we be consistent about this i think you know any incumbent any regime is hoping that people just sort of tire out yeah you know, uh, that they get that they get exhausted and and it's not as um as big of an issue for people around the world, they move on to other things. That's their hope, that's their goal. And so for that reason alone, I think the consistency is gonna be really, really vital, really mm-hmm. crucial. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I think. well, I think that's, um, again, these things are so complex and to say, okay, this is, it's gonna take a, a long time or it's not gonna take a long time or, or knowing, we don't know. Mm-hmm. We can look at historically, even I was thinking about it, you know, sometimes we hear the revolution of 1983, the revolution of this year makes it seem like it's a moment, like as yeah. if it just happened one moment and then it was done. When really you look at it, there's always like build up and different factors that were playing into it for a long time. So uh, historically, that's how things can look. When we look back, it seems like it was one moment where really it was it was a long time coming or a lot had to happen. So we have to keep that in mind here as well. That yes. again, I can't say how long it would take, but I do from everything I'm seeing, recognize that it likely will take some time. And I yeah. really say that not to discourage people because I think sometimes people think oh it's discouraging be optimistic think of it a certain way but it's being more realistic but also then looking at if we don't think of that it that way then if it doesn't happen like in two months like oh well then it's not happening and people will give up recognizing no it actually these things even because I think especially when you're seeing things the way people let's say who are all of course against the regime see things it seems so obvious like why wouldn't this just end if it's going to end it would make sense for it to happen quickly but realizing that of course you're seeing it from your perspective your side of things when there's a whole power structure in place even if a lot of people are against it it doesn't just people don't just like oh we'll give up the power because it seems like you guys don't like the way we have our power it's like no they're going to fight against it and they have the power from military to institutional to everything else so it's going to take time even if you are rightfully angered and rightfully want to change things i think we have to be ready for that so yeah the consistency you mentioned i've been impressed by it of course in iran but outside of iran as well which is really who we're speaking to more today yeah and i hope we'll continue that realizing it's it's going to take time we're not gonna uh be done with this anytime soon likely well these things like you said um movements of this sort this is uh, a huge undertaking uh, the default presumption is that regimes stay in power and continue, and regime change is rare. And there's a reason it's rare. It's because there's a lot of forces uh, pushing against that. And so these things generally tend to be a slow build, which I think is also why it's worth showing that, you know, the fact that it's a non-violent uprising, 
for the most part. It's been entirely nonviolent. You know, historically, revolutions are far more likely to succeed when they're nonviolent than when they're violent, mm -hmm. substantially more likely. And there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, among which when, when it starts to become violent, it gives the regime an excuse to be exceedingly brutal, to say we are cleaning up the disorder when, when it comes violent. It also is much less likely to get the support of the international community once things become violent. And so a sustained, continued, enduring, nonviolent protest combined with things like strikes and people who are sort of like no longer participating in the economy. So it's sort of like it's having an effect that is destabilizing the entire structure. Those things over the long haul are much more effective than a dramatic, violent uprising. Mm -hmm. and much more likely to succeed. And that's uh, one of those things that can be the opposite of what we tend to think. People think when we hear in revolution, mm -hmm. it sounds violent or we think it has to be violent. And that's actually even historically, that was the understanding that a, a revolution has to be violent or it's not a revolution. And that was true more before, but there, we do see that changing. Um, I did learn a lot in a book I read called On Revolutions just a few mm -hmm. weeks ago looking at the study of revolutions and, and different things. And, and they were also talking about we have to be mindful of not getting into dichotomies. Rarely is it purely nonviolent or violent. There's usually some of both. Yeah. But yes, there could be differences in how violent or nonviolent or what's the primary uh, focus. But I think a lot of times we just think a revolution has to be um, violent for it to be an actual revolution. But as you said, you know, not just the international community, they find that within the country, it gains less support when it becomes more violent because yeah. people it, it just seems you know has a different what you need for a, a revolution to succeed is a broad coalition you need yes. people from lots of different uh, a diverse background diverse yes. and even then you have to get into like sometimes government agencies or people mm -hmm. to join you and that's more likely to happen when it's primarily nonviolent versus violent so i think what's important to look at there is of course there's so much anger and rage that people yeah. have towards the regime understandably so completely understandable and so i've actually so many people even clients but just individuals will say you know i'll see sometimes the violence and i'm almost surprised at how much i like it like when yeah. the protesters are attacking yeah. uh, you know and like they almost get shocked that i didn't think i'm a violent person or i like violence but there's so much rage and it's so justifiable that people might get surprised so it's understandable and, and at times of course in self-defense those things it's going to be important but being aware, and especially for those of us outside, um, that likely a non the nonviolence might go further, even if there's more of a uh, you know a spark when you see a some violence. Often the nonviolence is what's going to be needed to sustain a, a movement to become a revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the reason to point that out is often it seems like well nothing's really happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People are there's an uprising, there's some strikes, there's some people that are you know participating in this very nonviolent. But this slow build, this slow grind is eroding the power the power structures it's eroding what the regime can do so it and, and even i would say the movements in the diaspora the, these uh you know continued enduring protests mm -hmm. um drawing attention to this continuing to keep the eyes of the international community on what's happening in iran this is extremely important it continues to be important the moment our eyes move away and move on to other things and iran goes dark that's when the brutality can really really escalate and mm -hmm. they can crack down so these things that seem like they're not having this big dramatic explosion of an effect, it's sort of this slow grind. This is the way these things usually work. This is the way revolutions work. So don't be dismayed or discouraged that, oh, is this what's happening? We keep yep. doing the same thing and nothing. No, it's, it is slowly grinding away 
and and it will reach a tipping point at which you know these things. It's it's like Hemingway's quote: "How do you become poor?" And I think he said it's gradually and then suddenly. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's similar here. You know, it's gradually, it's a gradual, gradual build, and then it can begin to sort of unravel yeah. relatively quickly. Actually, in that that HBO documentary Hostages, I think someone had said something like. Um, you know, revolutions seem impossible until they become inevitable or they seem inevitable. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah. you know, this, these things, that's why I, I keep emphasizing the long process is because uh, another thing I, I've talked about a lot on the show is results versus responsibility. Yeah. And so if we focus on results, like what, you know, something has to change. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. I'm going to post something and something's going to change. Or we're going to yeah. have a protest and something's going to change. And it's, you know, most of the things you do, you don't see any results, right. like any tangible result. Like we're going to have a protest and then, because people think, well, we have a protest. Is that going to change what's happening in Iran? Yeah. yeah, well, one protest, no, probably doesn't do anything. But the accumulation and, and, and there's so many factors that take place that will can that will lead to results. And so rather than focusing on is there a result in what I'm doing, I really encourage people. And it's really in everything in life, but yes. to focus on your responsibility. Yeah. Have I done everything in my power and my responsibility for the people of Iran? And that's yeah. it. And then you can't you can't hold on to the result because that's not up to you. Yeah your responsibility is up to you. So I really encourage people, because if you focus on results, you'll stop. Like, well, yeah, I posted like 20 things and nothing's happened, so who cares? Yeah. But if you focus on responsibility, okay, I want to use whatever platform I have to spread awareness, to be the voice of the people of Iran. That's my responsibility. I think that can allow people more longevity in going that, okay, I'm just keep meeting my responsibility. You can get motivated by seeing the people of Iran, I think, to keep yourself going. But to not focus on did I see something happen based on something I did because you rarely do. Right. I mean, we and we have an instant gratification culture in which yeah. uh, we we increasingly expect things to happen more quickly. Even the way that our social media diet is, uh, anything that's longer than a minute doesn't get views. You know, we want something that happens kind of immediately. We want results immediately. It's also why this issue of it being consistent and enduring is most difficult because people will slowly get bored of what's happening, and mm-hmm. you have to sort of continue that but like you said it's almost everything in life you know when we eat a nutritious meal and take care of ourselves and exercise we're not going to see an immediate result yeah this is something that we do on a consistent basis and the results as they say they lag they come later mm-hmm. um, and it's not a clear one-to-one relationship between oh I ate this meal and then I became healthy you know it's something you continue to do on an enduring basis and this is similar this is um, small actions taken en masse by a large number of people, millions and millions of people coming together, doing small things over the long run, and we can see incredible, remarkable results. You know, they mm-hmm. always say people sometimes overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a year. So in one day, I, I, I've had this, I have my schedule of things I want to do, and I rarely hit all of those things. But in the long run, if you, for a year, say, I'm going to do this thing for three hours a day, every day, over the you'll be shocked Mm -hmm. you'll be shocked at how much you're able to achieve yeah and i think that that's important to to keep that in mind that that accumulation and that lag it's it's going to be there you're almost never going to see a result from something you do you post something nothing's gonna happen you might get a message from someone but as far as seeing something tangible it's rare but focusing on what what you're doing you know another thing you mentioned earlier that i think is important to to touch on is like staying, it's sad to even say, but staying trendy or staying, you know, on topic. That's why we have to yeah. stay consistent. But something I felt, and I, you see it a lot where people are angry, oh, it took like this celebrity this long to even make a comment about what's yeah. happening in Iran. And I get it. We're, one, we're so angry. We see the injustice. It's unjustifiable. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, it, and everywhere we see, we see it. So it's like, why didn't you see it? But it, I think there can be something important to have a humility of recognizing there's been so many things that have happened and are currently happening in the world that 
I can say personally, I haven't even known about right. or spread awareness about. So having that sense of we think what you're on is on everyone's mind, but it really isn't. That's why we have to keep amplifying it. And that, you know, yeah, in the past, someone might have said, oh, do you know what's happening in this country? And you're like, okay. And you maybe you didn't care much or you didn't get involved. And we have to have yeah. that humility and understanding that we can't expect everyone to care about Iran as much as we care about Iran. And that if we want their support, we have to expect that. Okay, well, it makes sense that to them, it's they might not really get it or won't care as much. But let's see if we can still enroll them to get their support. And once it's there, not to be like, well, they wait, they, it took too long. Or like you said, yeah. you know, going back to that unity, well, that's not strong enough of a message or they took too long or whatever it might be. Yes. Uh, just to remember that for you, Iran means something that it won't to other people. And we have yeah. to just expect and accept that. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that for so many of us, it's almost become an obsession. I mean, we think about it mm -hmm. constantly and it, for good reason. I mean, this is a movement that could really change the course of not only the 80 plus million people of Iran, but around the world, it can have a dramatic, dramatic impact for the good. So it is it is natural, especially after 43 years of what we've seen to have so much passion and, and care so much about it. But you're right. I mean, it's there are a lot of things that are vying for people's attention around the world, these celebrities and various other people, it is, we have to have a level of humility there as well to recognize that this is, for me, a huge issue that I spend so much of my time thinking about. Mm -hmm. But for this person, it won't be, and that's okay. I mean, this is even within among Iranians too. We can't expect that because I think about this day and night and I dream about it, that that person across the street who's also Iranian should care as much as me. Mm -hmm. They might spend one day a week, but they're contributing and I don't think if we dismay that contribution is not being enough we're just losing people yeah we're just discarding people and and limiting the pool of people that care if it's only going to be people that care about this issue with the same passion and in the same manner that you do and I'm saying this to myself or anyone the number of people that are going to be behind this are not going to be enough to make any change simple as that you're going to have to incorporate people that see this issue with less passion than you do that they're going to spend less time on it that their support's going to be tacit. But let me tell you, the support of a major celebrity with a huge platform of over 100 million people, even that small mention that we believe wasn't enough or was too late, makes a huge impact. Mm -hmm. So we should support it. And we should encourage it. Yeah, and it goes back to this this theme of, of unity and making sure we stay aligned uh, because that's the only way we, we will get, get the results that we're hoping for, which is, of course, uh, for this regime to come to an end. And it's only going to happen through lots of people helping in many different ways. And as you said, not exactly in the way that you would want it if you were speaking for them, but that's that's their voice that they're using that you have to let them use and amplify in whatever way they choose to. Uh, we're, we're at another commercial break. We'll continue discussion with Parham after this. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, so, uh, Parham and I, we've been discussing the, the situation in Iran, and as I mentioned, really, we're talking more about the situation outside of Iran, what those of us outside can do, um, and some thoughts about that. And of course, talking about this movement, we are two men, but it's impossible to not talk about the women that have been at the forefront of this, even when we look at some of the, the slogans, the one to me that's the most powerful one women, life, freedom, that, that woman part, that's the, the first part because, you know, I've, I've heard this term gender apartheid and different phrases used to describe what's been happening in Iran and how it's been. Even actually when you look at the uh, Iranian revolution right after when women saw what was happening, they many of them wanted 
a revolution. They wanted something to change in 1979. But when they saw that there was all these restrictions on women's rights, many women protested and there were thousands of women in the street saying that, no, this is not the revolution we wanted or were, were asking for. And so then we've seen that even things getting worse over time. And so, um, of course, we can't ignore that, that that is a big part of, of this movement of what's happening. And of course, the women have been at the forefront, but the men have been with them as far as supporting them and they want things uh, to change as well. So any thoughts, I don't know, you have on, on that yeah. aspect of things? I think it's, you know, we were talking about how important it is to have a wide, um, wide, diverse, broad coalition of people that are behind this movement. And I think I would say the most meaningful factor that is leading to a broad, broad-based coalition, not only of Iranians, but even non-Iranians to be involved, is the fact that this is being led by women. Mm-hmm. Because that is such a, this becomes a human rights issue. It is no longer about, you know, a, a country seeking regime change, one group versus another. This is about basic, fundamental human rights that I think everyone, men and women, will feel uh, sort of a deep resonance with. And there's also evidence that, you know, revolutions or movements that are, um, not entirely with men, where women play a significant role, are much more likely to be successful. Hmm. And so there's a few reasons for that. One is usually, like, so one of the key things you mentioned this, is having a broad, broad coalition of people from different demographic backgrounds, different um, from the villages and the cities, socioeconomic. The more broad-based and diverse the, the people that are behind wanting regime change, the more likely it is to succeed. And so uh, having women behind this crosses a, cuts across all of these different uh, stratifications and divisions. It, everyone comes together. It's also much more likely when a revolution is led by women to get the support of the international community. So mm-hmm. this is historically even nothing compared to this unique movement, a, a revolution truly led by women in this way. But even in other movements where women played a significant enough role, they were more likely to, get su- to be successful. And the third reason it's um, when women are at the front, um, in general, um, there's less violence and brutality from the regime. Mm. In general. Um, now, sadly, we've seen that that's not always something that's been followed in what we've seen thus far, and it's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but in general, there tends to be a bit, a bit of reluctance to use excessive br- brutal violence when it's women, and um, you know that's sadly not always been the case in what we've observed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know you mentioned a few of those important points, looking at what might make it even more impactful that it's about women and but and if you look at just in a human type of way or just maybe even simpler than that like the numbers any society when all the members of that society don't get full rights full opportunities the whole society pays the price essentially and so when any humans are not given full human rights we really do all pay a price so if we don't give women the opportunities to you know, get educated and to have access to various things that will allow them to succeed, the whole society is held back by that. And that's something we've seen, of course, lots of things have made Iran go backwards in these last uh, four decades. But I think that's definitely a big part of it as well, is that when you're putting down half of your society, yeah. of course, you can't go as far as if you had that whole, uh, you know, all members of society able to contribute and to live their lives fully. And I would say even deeper than that. I, I think when there's inhumane mm-hmm. laws, inhumane ways of behaving, it goes beyond even the group that's being subjected to it. So even if it's a 
let's say it's a tiny minority of people, mm-hmm. but they're being subjected to, to just genocidal, inhumane behavior. I think it affects the whole society. It just sure. doesn't affect them. Yeah. It, and here we're talking about women. I mean, all women and everyone, every individual, every human being has deep, deep connections with women, whether you're a man or a woman, of course. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing people that are the dearest people to us being subjected to things that are just, I don't know what other words to use, but, but inhumane and unethical and immoral. It's not just about them being discriminated against or having disadvantages. You know, in the United States, there's disadvantages. You know, women, you know, there's a, a pay gap and there's all kinds of things. So, so injustice exists based on gender everywhere. What's happening in Iran is just brutally immoral, Yeah, what women are subjected to. Mm-hmm. It's deeper than that. And that affects every single individual. The son who sees his mother subjected to that is affected by that in a mm-hmm. deep, deep way. Mm-hmm. So this is affecting everyone. And this is why it's getting the attention and passion of people across the world that that women are asserting their rights here. This is not about sort of, you know, dismissing the role of men. Men have been incredibly powerful in this in this movement for in Iran as well, supporting women, lifting them up and being there and being incredibly brave. But it's the fact that what happens to women affects all of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, as you're talking, you know, that beautiful quote by Martin Luther King Jr., injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And it sounds like this nice quote and then it kind of has this like nice uh, flow to it but then you realize as you're saying that it affects all of us when there is injustice everyone does get affected and of course we just have to be careful not to say that i'm as affected by the people mm-hmm. who are actually experiencing it but it has a negative impact on, on all of society uh all of whatever society that we're in um i saw the film holy spider which i highly recommend people to see it really really powerful movie that shows the misogyny and the corruption in Iran uh, where you have someone who's killing women um, who are um, sex workers but that the man all in some for some people becomes like a hero you know mm-hmm. because he's like doing something good and even the I, I thought it was so interesting hearing the ways they talked about things in the movie where people was like well these women that come and do this to our men like they would like almost like it was the woman's fault not that well about the men who are or, or you know are participating in this of course being 50 percent of that interaction mm-hmm. um but it was just seen the women were the problem though they were the ones that were you know doing the wrong thing and the men were were okay they're not that they're just like, almost like innocent victims in all of this and so when you know things like male supremacy and the patriarchy and these things get so ingrained in a society it really does seep into everything you know this when we talk about institutional whether it's racism or sexism mm-hmm. what i think is profound is that of course everyone could recognize the injustice there but i think the younger generation even more is at the forefront of this as well uh i'm sure for many things of course as a new generation has fresh eyes more connected to the outside world through the internet social media that they're they're saying this is no doesn't have to be this way this doesn't make sense these things that you think are so you know true and and even my voice i changed there because there's a way we talk we think okay no men this and women that and it becomes so part of society this is something that the more i'm learning about the brain and the human brain and how much it's a predicting machine and we can be put in any culture and we kind of absorb that and then it feels so real like yeah. for example money is a social construct we hear this but when i say here's like ten thousand dollars you feel something you're like, no it's just real what do you mean it's a social construct yeah. that feels so deep and so so much of how a society teaches people what men are, what women are, who's good, who's bad, who's better or worse, it seeps into everything that it can be hard to break that. But we can see that the people, I mean, there's just a way you see people in Iran in these videos where you're like, no, this is not the way 
it needs to be. This is yeah. not truth that you think it is. You know? And I and I think that when you why I think it's going to be difficult to turn the clock back right now is that for for women who have gone out there and have tasted freedom, just a bit of it, it's going to be really tough for them to go back and live under that that level of oppression again. Once they've once they've been out there, I think that's going to be very challenging for all of Iran to to go back to because they've just they've glimpsed it what it's like to not be subjected to that. And you're talking about these these sort of illusions that we then begin to like just integrate into our our version of what reality must be. And it's also with power structures and institutions. Mm-hmm. I mean, this government itself, you know, before revolutions lead to regime change, it, there's an invincibility mm-hmm. to the power structures, to the majesty of the of the monarchy or the majesty of the theocracy or whoever it is. When that begins to unravel, and which is what these enduring long-term protests can do when their legitimacy is, is taken into question. It's, it's incredible how fast they can fall. Mm-hmm. Something that you just held as, well, there's no way. There's no way anything is ever going to be able to compete with this type of power. We can't. And then it does. It does crumble. And that illusion begins to sort of unravel. Well, yeah, that illusion, the thing is, part of that illusion we we all want. Mm-hmm. You know, So there's this sense of life makes us anxious life is uncertain so we want to believe you know this goes yeah there's kings and that's you know even we had that in Uranda. king is somehow from god and mm-hmm. is perfect and can't make a mistake and as long as we have him we're safe or you know we have religion or we have different things and so the, the people often do want to buy into that too in some ways of having this you know um uh, omnipotent type of power that we have that we can rely on and that's why i just i just see it as we have to accept as human beings it's kind of like a separate uh, thing in general but that life is just the way it, it's it's still uncertain we we try to make the best of it but there is no guarantees or if we have this person in power or this type of thing yeah. everything's going to be perfect that's just not not true and so people take advantage of that because if they can get you to believe that hey look as long as you have me you're going to be safe mm-hmm. and you're doing it the right way or you're perfectly going to be you know all those things you know they they lull you to sleep into this way of then taking advantage of you and doing whatever they want because it's like no no but we're doing it the perfect way or it's for the, you know it's for the king how can you say no to the king the king comes from god and yeah. disobeying him you're just disobe- you know none of that stuff is real and so i'm very you know seeing what's happening and it's just something i felt even more is power is such a um uh, this thing that we it is also socially constructed because it could you know someone's the king and then they're not that happened to the shah he was the king and the most important thing and he had to get out of the country mm-hmm. he had to basically escape so these things that seem so real but power being in the hands of a few is always problematic it's so corrupting it's so hurtful and harmful and so yeah it's very easy of course democracy all these things but really seeing how corrosive it is and seeing what's happening um, around the world, it just is so heartbreaking to see the people who have power. It could be few, yeah. but they won't let go of it. And other, so many people are suffering, and this is kind of how history has always been. I think Thomas Piketty's book uh, is wonderful. He's written yeah. a lot of things about this of how inequality is justified with these ideologies. Um, I just think it's so you know. I know I'm kind of like rambling here, yeah. but seeing what's happening yeah. and the power being in the hands of the few, it's just so heartbreaking. And I think the people are saying, "We don't. Who are you people that are in power? You don't deserve." what you think you deserve. It's a, and like you said, it's a, it's a very uh, primitive system to have mm-hmm. uh, most of the power in the hands of a few. And if you think about what the success of the United States has been, it's been checks and balances. It's not having too much power in the hands of anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it's not about having the perfect philosopher king uh, ruling everything and being a dictator. Dictators are very simple. Dictatorships are much simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, democracy is difficult. This type of checks and balances system is one in which you're not giving too much power in the hands of anyone because even the best, most benevolent, knowledgeable person 
can be corrupted. This can happen. And so because of that, it's not about picking the right people, it's about picking the right system. Mm -hmm. Having the right system and having a coalition of people that are in power so that a system can be governed in a way that is in the interests of the people and it doesn't allow for, again, it takes away from the sort of the safety and simplicity of often even what religion does. All of the answers are in this book. All of the answers in this all-powerful ruler that comes even from God. Mm-hmm. That makes the world much simpler to navigate. Democracy, it's really, it's complicated. It's extraordinarily yeah. complicated. And as a result, um, I think, hopefully, what Iran is moving towards is something that's away from this sort of dictatorship and theocracy and something towards uh, a system that has these checks and balances so that, um, you know, it's not corrosive in the way that this has been. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I'm not one with enough knowledge to speak on this, which I maybe I'm, I shouldn't have said that because I'm going to say it anyway. But, <laughs> but you know, if we look at what, what people seem to be upset about was the Shah having too much power and one, you know, it's one person and then, you know, various corruption and relationships with outside forces. But basically then it was just like one, you know, benevolent force replaced with another one that was, you know, then became yeah. corrupt in its own way. I think that's another just like bigger lesson is like, look, the, yeah. you just need, that's not going to work. And I don't think, you know, revolutions are so dynamic and so much, hap- so much is happening and there's no like this like clear plan that everyone's you know even like democratically voting on to create what's going to replace this this new one but that's to me what you see happen was that people were unhappy about this one person having too much power and then it was like okay now a very small number of people in a certain type of way have power and we it led to the same kind of like you know not good result and not even to compare them as one is good or bad but that that's never going to be the solution i think we're moving towards that and that's even this movement of it's everyone it's the men and the women it's the women getting rights is that it's a movement towards this more equality which i think is ultimately the only way you, you know you get to some type of a more stable um and more just uh reality which is what i think we're hoping for it's not just we're anti this regime because we're anti the regime we're anti people not having rights people not having freedom that's woman life freedom that's why we're chanting this is that that's what it's about that we want to move towards that uh, so we are at our last commercial break and we'll just have some final thoughts uh, with my brother Parham. we'll be right back welcome back so again uh, here with my brother Parham, we've been talking about some some thoughts on what's happening on Iran, how those of us outside of Iran might look at things, do things, focus on unity and how much we want to, to, to be together. You know, we're talking on the break. Um, people are more hopeful this time. Yeah. And and you never know when you're in something, if it's just because you're in it that it feels different or it actually is different. Yeah. And so, but I've heard from many people this feeling that it's, it, it does feel different. It does seem different. I do sense that, uh, it does feel pretty clear. Um, the analogy that one time came to me that felt very relevant was the sense that people kept, it's almost like you're stuck in this room and you keep pushing against the door and like it just, just hurts you every time you, you knock up against it. But that we kept pushing, kept pushing. One time you saw it open just a little bit, then shut again. And it's almost like this feeling that, wait, this thing, like you said before, that feels like it could never change. Maybe it actually can. And so I think because of that, it's made people of course, more hopeful, more excited, but even more their emotions have come up because they feel like they can be more angry or they can express that feeling, whereas before they felt like they couldn't. So many people I've talked to from from clients to just people in general have said that a lot of their own feelings about the regime and about what they've experienced and other things have come up in ways that hadn't before. They were there, but they're coming up in ways that 
that they hadn't or even feelings they didn't realize they had or they hadn't been in touch with for a long time um, have been coming up. So that's just something I've noticed for many people is that there's a sense that they've maybe accepted that, like, as you said, it's just the regime was there and it can never, not never, but it feels like it's just not going to change. So what's the point of even thinking or feeling certain things about it? But right now, this possibility, there's these cracks that I think have allowed through those cracks, feelings bubbling up and things coming up that people didn't even realize were there or it makes these feelings more alive, but they were there the whole time. Yeah, I, I think there's something really deep about being hopeful and then having that hope dashed. Mm-hmm. I think all of us are afraid of getting our heart broken, right? To, to really emotionally invest in something, anything, and then have that crushed. When that happens a few times, the next time you're much more careful mm-hmm. and cautious. I'm not going to let that, that heartbreak happen again, that hopelessness happen again. And so I think as a result, you know, because we've knocked on this door before, and it hasn't led to the result that people wanted. It's um, that was very, um, I think, for many people that made them much more cautious. Um, and so I think you're right. I think when we begin to see these cracks, that somehow this feels and sense that there's something different happening here. I think it leads to a whole flood of emotions. You know, it begins to. I think for for me at least, I was surprised how much emotion I felt. Mm-hmm. I really was. I mean, I, I think. Throughout my life, I wouldn't say Iran was center stage in my life. I was born in the United States. I've lived here my entire life. I haven't, like I said, I haven't been to Iran. I haven't experienced what that's like. And I'm not even someone that walked around and proudly told the world I'm Iranian all the time. I wouldn't say that that's like integral to my identity if I'm honest about it. I'm ashamed to say it, but I didn't. And I think part of that is because Iran was so deeply connected with the Islamic Republic. It was so deeply connected with the regime that was there. And that's how... Iran was portrayed. You know, when I when I tell someone in school, for example, when I'm a little kid, I remember, the reaction they give me to I'm Iranian is simply what they've seen on the news. And what they've seen on the news is generally going to be the conflicts between Iran and the United States and representations of, of the current regime. It's not going to be the depth and the history of, of Persepolis and King Cyrus and Hafez and all. It's not going to be that. That's not on the news. And so what they see, what I see in their eyes when I tell them Iran is that. And even for me, I, you know, of course I've heard the rich history and stories of what Iran has been and everything that it's meant to the world. And, and it's a deep part of who I am. But I have to say a lot of that I think I was repressing and pushing down until now. Until now. I mean, I think so much of that, that's why I think it's triggered this, this incredible range of really deep emotions, is I feel so, you know, and I see these women bravely standing up and and the men behind them supporting them and the way that they are together it's so beautiful to see that this is my country mm-hmm. this is something that i can be so proud of and i want the whole world to see what they're doing and so that that going from this shame of what iran has been because of the regime and what they've represented and what they've done to the sense of pride the emotion is so intense it's mm-hmm. this part of me that's part of my identity it's who i am to my core i'm iranian to my core, growing up in the United States, but my core, my identity, who I am is Iranian. And I now feel like I can embrace that. And there's also this hope of what could be, you know, this the, the possibilities of what Iran can be. We always knew that if there's one place in the world where the potential of what the country could be versus what it currently is, that the, the discrepancy between that is very wide and vast in Iran, what mm-hmm. we could be. And so naturally, you know, along with the heartbreak, 
along with all the difficult images we're seeing, along with all of the other things, there is this incredible hope yeah. of what's possible. Well, that's that's the thing when you say what's possible. I think that's something I, I, I realized was that being born in the United States, but also be, Iran being the way it was, and the essential impossibility of what felt like impossible to go there or to have that be part of my life, there was a way of not even looking at it as, as possible, just accepting yeah. that it can't be part of, of life. That's yeah. just there. And and so what's happened, I think, lately has made it feel like it is more of a possibility. There's something there that can that can come out, that can show part of ourselves, but also even as a place to go. Like that thought of going to Iran when I was younger, which I go, maybe someday a lot would have to change. And really it seemed almost like this very abstract probably never kind of a feeling to be honest yeah. and now it's like okay maybe you know not not that i'm expecting it to be very very soon but it's more possible and so it, it's just it is quite puzzling because it's part of going back to what i was saying of like when we accept certain things as being the way they are now it seems like well of course if most people don't want it to be this way why shouldn't it be different you know it's still mm-hmm. it's much easier said than done but there's a sense of why shouldn't it be different and this is kind of what people in power always do they make you feel like it can't be any other way or you have to accept things the way they are and then you realize like wait it doesn't have to be this way why would only a few people or you know a small percentage be happy with the way things are and the majority have to be unhappy why does it have to be this way it doesn't but things become so you know it's kind of like that uh, you know the thing of like asking the fish like how's the water and like what's water it's like we're just so in that system that you don't realize it can be different so i realized for me it was almost just Sadly, Iran was this, you know, if like you're looking at the map, of course, it was like Iran, but it was almost like a blank space on the map because I didn't think it was something even possible. I had to accept that I just couldn't think of it as a place to, to think about to go. Like, imagine in 10 years, we're like, oh, where do you want to go? Should we go to Shiraz? We go? Like, imagine like yeah. it's a city. We never even thought of saying it as a city or a country to, to visit or to, to imagine the possibilities. Yeah. But now there is something that feels like it's been woken up that is, I think, like you said, bringing up a lot of emotions for people in different ways. And all of us are going through it differently, but also unified as well, going back to that theme of of unity, that we want this change. It might mean different things to each of us, but we all want this change to happen. And I think it's it's like what's difficult is, you know, Iran and being Iranian is, for all of us, I think, is a source of so much pride in so many ways, but that's in conflict with all of the pain that Iran has caused for us mm-hmm. over the last 43 years. You know, it's true pain to our family, to people that we know, people that we love. We know that it's been a source of deep, the deepest pains, the deepest wounds, the deepest traumas. And so there's this this conflict that I think all of us feel when we see it. I remember when I would, there was a time where I was traveling a lot to the Middle East for work that I was doing, con- uh, advising various governments. and And... I would fly over Iran to get to the places that I would help. I would literally see below me, um, over the land of Iran, you know, and I, even there, I remember just looking down, I'm like, that's that's my home, that's my country. And I felt so much. It was just mountains. It was nothing really mm-hmm. that would suggest it was any different than anywhere else. But I was like, oh, that is my home. And it, it, it really was, I think the reason it had such a dramatic impact on me is because it really felt like such a far off place that was untouchable. 
mm-hmm. that we couldn't actually touch and feel. I mean, I literally was. I was traveling ac- around. The only place that I couldn't go was Iran. It was one the one country. Every other place, I would be. But that's one place that I wasn't able to go to. And and so it did feel so distant, you know, familiar. And and it's part of you know, it's literally in our soul, in our mind, in our heart, and yet so far. And I got to tell you, even now thinking of the possibility of going there, I can't even think of it yet because it feels. Again, like I don't want that hope to be dashed. It's still so. It still feels distant even now. Yeah, I think getting our hopes up, like you said, is always. Uh, we try not to, and, and unfortunately, because of that we often don't create a lot of possibilities. It's like, okay, we're you know a relationship where you're afraid to get hurt, you might not start it. A new career, a new thing. This is of course bigger than all of those things. You know, I'd have to acknowledge like when you were talking this thought that because seeing Iran the way that I did, or almost not seeing it because of of how things are. I likely did not do enough, you know, or even yeah. think about, because again, the feelings were there or the, you know, I didn't think, oh, uh, until what's happened the past few months, things, people in Iran were being treated well or everyone was happy, but I wasn't saying much about it. So, I mean, I have to acknowledge that part of things mm-hmm. as well. And it, it really took the people of Iran who have, have created this movement yeah. to wake everyone up even more, wake up those feelings or, um, those actions of of people getting involved because I've seen people myself included who are not really being at the forefront the way they are now but people are are mobilized so really of course as is obvious the credit all goes to them but they've mobilized everyone in Iran but also the diaspora to be like more awake and like hey like something can happen Uh, we can do this and so get involved but really when I look at myself I'd say okay I think I just so accepted that it just it was the way it was and nothing could be done that I, I wasn't speaking on the injustices that were clearly there, even yeah. though that's something I do even on my shows, talking about injustices, for example, in the United States, even around the world. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, you know, go there. And that's why I, I would have to acknowledge of uh, something I do regret. Of course, I don't want to sit in that regret. I want to focus on what I can do now, going back to that theme of responsibility. Um, but I think, yeah, really, I almost looked at it as like just something that it was, it was just, that's it, accepted as how yeah. it is. And that's what the regime would want. And I'm glad we're not, no longer, we're no longer accepting it. Yeah, it, it felt insurmountable. And so why, you know, it, and I also, like you, the true trailblazers are the people that were behind this and have been pushing down this wall for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And that takes courage. It, it, it is easier to jump on when it looks like there's a glimmer of hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I will acknowledge that that's, that really is probably a big, a big reason why I've been so um, passionately invested in this now. But as, as you said, I can't say that this is something that I've been pushing for for years and years and years. I haven't. And this is exactly where, you know, I think we really need to, of course, give more credit to those who have done more, give more credit to those who were doing this when it felt impossible. And there were many people that were. People within Iran, <laughs> what, what they're able to do, the courage that they have. I can't even imagine waking up in Iran and what they feel and what they're going through and what they mm-hmm. have to face. I mean, I can't. It, my life has been so far from that. And I've been so fortunate in so many ways that that even image and feeling of what that must be like is difficult for me to relate to. I try to. And I think it just puts me in tears when I really, really go there to think of what that must be like. And I think with all of that, you know, all of us within Iran and in the Iranian diaspora in particular come from very different places. Iran has had a different role in each of our lives. 
and we come with different temperaments, different different characteristics. And because of all of those things, our support is going to come in very different ways, different flavors, different varieties. And without question, some are doing more than others, and that should be acknowledged. But I really think, you know, being part of a very collectivist culture with passionate opinions, it becomes very easy to question what others are doing. And we really need to recognize that most of that is not because if the intentions are positive, if the intentions are with the same goal and objective, I think it's really critical that we express compassion for each other, show compassion, show love, and have that unity and togetherness be the paramount quality we all have because we have the same goals. And without question, me and Fatty coming on this more more recently, not being someone who has been doing this for years and years and years, like so many other people that I can mention. Um, but we need the support of even the people that are jumping on today. Right. So that's the whole, that's kind of bringing back to this theme of um, the unity, not the, in the sense of like letting anyone off the hook, including ourselves, but looking at what we can do now, uh, we hope that people continue to be consistent, continue to support. All we can do is amplify the voices of the people of Iran, amplify their stories, share what they're going through to the rest of the world, uh, to not lose that consistency, because as you mentioned, that's what they're waiting for is for us to, to stop, to give up. And the disunity is another thing that we can make sure each one of us, am I contributing to more unity? Am I doing everything I can to help? And we all have one goal in mind, which is to have a free Iran for things to change. And everyone who's on that side, make sure we're pushing in the same direction. We don't get in each other's ways in that effort. Uh, Param, thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you. Um, and also, as always, Fahuda, thank you for being with us in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Thank you.